Hello everyone and welcome to the Writer's Book Club podcast. I'm Michelle Baraclough and each month I take a deep dive with an author into the writing craft and process behind one of their books. My guest this month is a woman of so many talents. She's a writer of novels for both adults and children. She's a lawyer, a festival board member, a prize judger and one of Australia's best interviewers. If you've ever been to a writer's festival, you will know Suzanne Leal. In this episode, we discuss Suzanne's latest novel, The Watchful Wife. Now, I could not put this book down. I absolutely loved it. I think Mark Brandy said it best. He said it's an intriguing page turner with emotional depth, nuance and moral complexity, a truly gripping read from start to finish. And I think that sums up a lot of Suzanne's writing. Her novels are really very layered. And of course, because it's by Suzanne Leal, it's superbly written. One of the really interesting insights I got from my chat with Suzanne was about balancing internal and external dialogue and how you can create a really vivid scene in the mind of the reader without too much description, literally just with what the characters are saying and using dialogue tags and actions. And Suzanne reads a section of the novel that perfectly demonstrates what I'm talking about there. So have a listen out for that. We also talked about balancing difficult content and serious subject matter with humour, another thing that she does really well. Suzanne talked about the importance of rhythm and pacing in her work and how she uses her emotional state at any given time in her writing, which I don't think I've ever discussed with a writer on the podcast before, so that was really great. Okay, let me tell you about The Watchful Wife. Raised by her severe parents in a punitive and authoritarian church, Ellen's narrow world is upended when she meets Gordon, a fellow teacher. Alan is both transformed and beguiled by the connection, love and laughter he brings into her life. When Gordon is accused of a shocking crime, Alan steadfastly refuses to believe Gordon has done anything wrong. Abandoned and reviled by those around her, she will have to fight to protect him. But what will that cost her and what will she discover about him along the way? Oh, it's so difficult to get across how good a book is in a blurb, don't you think? So you're just going to have to trust me. This is a really good one and it has a cracking twist at the end. All right, let me tell you a bit about Suzanne before we dive into the interview. She is the author of four novels, The Watchful Wife, The Deceptions, The Teacher's Secret and Border Street. Her debut children's novel, Running with Ivan, is a story of time travel and adventure set in wartime Europe. Suzanne is a regular presenter at literary, corporate, community and school events. She's the former chair of the Fiction and Poetry Panel for the Prime Minister's Literary Awards, for which she was also a judge, and is a board member of Bad Sydney Crime Writers Festival. Suzanne is also a lawyer, experienced in child protection, criminal law and refugee law. She's a senior member of the New South Wales Civil and Administrative Tribunal and former member of the Refugee Review Tribunal. See what I mean? talented with a capital T. And did I mention she also has four children? Yep, she is one very busy lady. Please enjoy my chat with the wonderful Suzanne Leal. Suzanne, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for coming on. I'm really happy to be here, Michelle. Thank you. We have had so many chats about writing over the years. It's so good to be able to bring this to the people. Yes, yes. Let's bring it to the people, Michelle. (laughs) You and me together. (laughs) One of the things I do want to actually say to you is thank you for all of your incredible support over the years. You're so supportive of the writing community and especially up and coming writers who aren't yet published. You've always been incredibly supportive of me, always genuinely asking about what I'm working on and also discussing your own work. So thank you for that on behalf of myself and the writing community. Oh, that's nice. Thank you. It's a nice community, isn't it? I think particularly for writers that haven't been published yet, it's it's hard, you know, it's it's a hard industry to know about and it's hard to get a break. And um, I think it's important to remember that because it's, you know, a lot of it's luck, a lot of it's that, you know, um, someone gets to the door but isn't let in, someone slips through. And, and, and I do think that it does you well not to forget that it's hard at that time. Yeah, a lovely humility that you have. I first knew you in the capacity as an interviewer. You have interviewed so many people on so many stages around Australia. How does it feel to be in the interviewee seat? I love it because it's such (laughs) little work. (laughs) 
<laughs> it's like, let's talk about me and I know about that. And I don't have to sort of put timing. I don't have to check for the dynamic. I just do my thing and leave it to you. I love it. <laughs> yeah, that's, I love it too. Um, Suzanne, I wanted to start off with uh, the inspiration behind The Watchful Wife. God, it was a fabulous read. Oh. I texted you when I finished it and yes. said I, that was unputdownable and my husband read it as well and he also couldn't put it down. In fact, he read it first and I had to wrestle it from his grip <laughs> to say, come on, I need to read this book because I like to read it pretty close to the interview. Yes. Um, so it's fresh in my mind. Um, so well done. It's just it's just great. I want to talk a little bit about that unputdownable factor as well. I mean, all of your books have been unputdownable, but this has got that kind of that mystery and that pace, you know? Yeah, I think... Look, I think I've probably learned a bit more. Yeah. Uh, I think I'm I'm being well edited and each time I'm edited, uh, often I have the same combination of editors mm. and I think we work well together and perhaps because I'm on the Bad Sydney Crime Writers Board and crime writing isn't hasn't been work that I've gravitated to primarily and my interest in the festival was really criminal justice focused mm. uh, but as a result I've read a lot of crime fiction and I wonder whether if you read books that rely on pace and rely on the audience being involved that it maybe spills in itself yeah, yeah. it was interesting I was talking to my I've got, got a um, publisher at HarperCollins called Lisa Berryman who publishes my kids work and she said that she'd read The Watchful Wife over the holidays because, of course, that's an Alan and Unwin book who did my adult books. And you know, she said she liked it. But I was interested to know whether she recognised me from my adult writing in my children's writing, right? whether you could sort of see the, see the link or you'd know who the person was. And she said she couldn't, which is interesting, isn't it? That's so interesting. How, how you can change yourself either for a story or an audience. Yeah, right. That's so interesting that you're bringing in those those learnings. Actually, I'll, that's a question I wanted to ask you about later, what you've learned from writing The Watchful Wife. So let's not get ahead of ourselves. Let's go let's back not. to the beginning yeah. of The Watchful Wife and tell me why this book? What was the inspiration? How did you know it was a novel-worthy idea? Uh, okay, so to be brutally honest, uh, the last five or six or seven years have been a quite a relentless time in terms of the growth of awareness for women uh, and the desire to right wrongs in terms of uh, women being badly treated. And obviously, as, as everyone would know, that's sort of um, formed the Me Too movement, which has been very interesting and very passionate and very loud. Uh, and I found interesting. I also come from a criminal law background where my work was defence-based more than prosecutorial. So I was representing people who have been accused of crimes which have um, more and more recently attracted the ire of the general community. And... That's interesting, you know, because I, I, as as a as a lawyer, I'm really wedded to the idea of the presumption of innocence and to the right of representation. But I also understand that there's a movement in which there has been a lot of unfairness, whether you're um, a woman, uh, whether you're coloured, whether you're anything really, I suppose, other than a straight white male, and the tables are turning in terms of what is acceptable and what isn't. And it's interesting to be the listener with that. But my role as a writer, I think, is always to push back a little bit. Mm. So particularly in this age of social media where we're encouraged to um, give our opinions in 280 characters or in one really quick soundbite. And I don't think the complexity of the criminal law and the complexity of people's actions can properly be analysed like that. I also think it's a difficult time to put your voice in the ring uh, in terms of factual issues. So to argue against a particular stand that might be a very popular community stand is a brave move. 
And given that I'm also a lawyer, I don't like to put myself in the spotlight in that area. I mean, I like to sort of keep to my work and then keep to my writing. The joy of fiction is that you can analyse issues that disquieten you or disturb you and it's okay because it's an imagined world. So I feel a great freedom in examining issues that have been very popular over the last, let's say, 10 years. Uh, and The Watchful Wife was in some ways my response to that. So um, it starts with the arrest or at least the um, questioning of a man who's accused of a sexual offence against a teenage girl who's a school student and his student. And I wanted to push that to talk about what might happen in that situation, whether or not a man is guilty. And I think a lot of books, and I'm talking about crime books in particular here, focus on the investigation work, so the, the, the police work, or it could be now a journalist or a psychologist, um, more and more from the complainant or the victim's point of view, and sometimes also from the accused. But rarely have I seen or have I read books that come from the perspective of the family of either the victim or less frequently, again, I would say, the uh, family of the, the accused. And I wanted to follow the line of one couple's life, not from the perspective of the man arrested, but from the woman who feels compelled to stand by him. Mm. And, I mean, he knows whether he's done it or not and the police don't know whether he's done something or not. So they're very dispassionate in those situations. So it's really clever to go from the wife's point of view because she also doesn't know mm. what the truth is, but there's a lot of emotion in the game. So mm. there, the stakes are huge and it's just a fantastic premise for fiction, I think. Mm. Thank you. And then when did the religious aspect come to you? So can we talk? I don't want to give away spoilers, but I guess it's not a spoiler to say that Ellen is from a religious family because it's on the blurb. Yeah, yeah. Okay, yes. Yeah. So, so, so the story is about Ellen and um, later on Gordon. And Ellen, as you've said, has been brought up in a very cloistered, very conservative church which is a sort of an ultra-Protestant church where there is very little ritual, uh, everything's very dua, everything's very strict and um, there's no luxury. And she has a difficult mother and an acquiescent father. I suppose what I wanted to do is when I knew I was going to write a book about a man accused of a crime and we're not quite sure if he's committed it or not, I wanted to do it from his wife's perspective, but I want to make, make things hard. I wanted a wife whose trajectory through those accusations would be made particularly difficult, uh, both from her upbringing, from um, what sort of peer group she has and how she's seen. So Ellen is an outsider except in her church and then she is in her church as well. So she dresses oddly for mainstream society. She behaves slightly oddly for mainstream society and she has to really push to be included uh, anywhere but her church. And I wanted to know how a person like that who has so often been an outsider who's um, subject to ridicule would deal with such a shameful allegation. And also, look, I wanted this to be funny. I think you can mire yourself too far. You can you can deal with a, a serious subject but it doesn't have to be a serious book all the time. And I thought she's so well odd. She's quite she's quite quirky. She's almost eccentric. And that enables you to do a fair bit of humour because there's a whole lot of misunderstandings, there's a whole lot of places where she just doesn't fit in. So it was twofold. It was put this woman in this water and see how she swims and the other thing is let's lift this serious issue into something that you will laugh at even if you're not sure you will you want to and I like that I like mm. making a reader laugh at segments that probably shouldn't be funny 
I mean, I love Roald Dahl, for example. Yeah, where the characters are in pretty dire situations, but there Mm. are some very funny moments. Mm. Do you always have that writerly hat on when you're thinking about, you know, the husband's being accused, there's a wife in the situation? Just the way you were speaking about those choices then makes me realise that you've always got that fictional eye. How do I make things worse for my characters? How do I up the stakes? That's always in the back of your mind when you're making these choices. I think, and I'm not going to say this completely, but that when I start a new book, I mostly know the beginning and I always know the end. Mm. Uh, So it's just a matter of getting to that end. And so it it makes it easier because each scene has to get you towards the end. And so I, and that's what having a book on the go, which you would know about, Michelle, is is comforting because you've always got something to think about, which isn't like a, a personal worry thing. Yeah. Like, um, so you've always got this imagined world and trying to nut out how this would happen because there's a lot of things that have to happen in this book. Like there needs to be issues of identification, who who will, won't be recognised or who will be recognised. And then you need to think, well, how do you do that? And you need to get people from one place to the other. Um you need to um, sever relationships and build others. And um, I think because I use this Scrivener um, software, which I think you use too, Mm, Michelle, uh, it lends itself to plotting your way to the end because you can divide it into different scenes and visually divide it into scenes. It means that you can jump from one to the other. So, And it's almost like a jigsaw puzzle. So you end up making the pieces, but then you can move them around if you need to. Yeah. So without spoilers, can you give an indication of how that worked for you? Was there a particular scene that you did have to move around a few times? Yeah, yeah. Is that too Um, detailed? (laughs) That might be too cast your mind back. Look, look, partly it's how do you begin a book, Mm. no? And um, often you've got to get the reader. I mean, if you haven't got the reader in half a page, you're cactus, unless you're someone very well-known who who gets more, more leeway. But, I mean, you really need to, I think, pound the reader with this is what this will be about, but maybe not yet. And so that's why I find, I suppose I find prologues quite useful because they can set up the story they can set up the theme and the uh, the issuance at stake, but you need to get to know the, the the characters. So, I found in this book the easiest way to do was to you know slam the prologue in about two or three pages, which is dramatic, and then bring back to get to know who this woman is and how she got there. Yeah, and for that you need some patience from the reader. So there there was that, and I think yeah, and then I had to work out. So we started with this arrest where the police have come into this married couple's house and it's all very traumatic. And then you go back to this woman being 10. And then a lot of the book I wanted to be concerning the allegation and what the consequences of that were for everybody. But, and this is what my publisher said, you know, you needed to get to know the the characters because if you haven't established a relationship with your main character and it's a first person book then again you may as well go home so it's it's getting that it was getting that balance between the exciting beginning uh giving enough of our character to love her or to like her or to be her and then sweeping it back to where you began without giving away too much so i think that 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 was the that was the trick or the puzzle of it, how you, what what issue forms the catalyst for the end of the first part, which can enable me to, to spring on to Gordon and the allegation. Does that make sense? Yes, it does yeah. make sense because I, I and I, it brought up a whole bunch of questions. I, I could just unpack about 10 things in that, including prologue, backstory, character development, all of it. All right, so let's try and unpack some of that. The prologue, I think, is brilliant and everyone should read that prologue because I think you do just a brilliant job of setting up exactly what you said. This is not only what's happening, 
and you're going to be drawn in by this plot because you immediately want to know, well, is he or isn't he guilty? Mm-hmm. You know, so there's a central question. Then uh, she is clearly odd. They're clearly an odd couple. You haven't got to know them yet, but there's enough juiciness in there that you want to get to know them. And then you've just done it in such a crisp fashion you know it's just really fast and furious that we're drawn in and I love that because you just want to get into the guts of the book so then I I feel like I'm in safe hands with that prologue so that I'm going to go with you in the next chapter back to when she's 10 Mm -hmm. so it has to do a lot doesn't it that prologue like it has to make me feel like I'm in really accomplished hands here and you're going to take me, I'm comfortable going on that journey with you. Because a lot of books that you read, they take you from one thing to another and you're really not sure and you just don't feel safe, that level of safety. And I did feel safe going on that journey with you. I think that reminds me of two things, actually. The first thing is, and you would know, Michelle, because we both interview a lot, um, early on when I was less experienced as an interviewer and I was getting some sort of fairly well-known names, so some international writers, I learnt pretty quickly that um, a lot of writers can be a bit skittish and a bit nervy and need to know that they're safe on stage. Often they don't like speaking in public. And the way I worked out to deal with that was that I would, um, you know, after a bit of a false start, contact them immediately, just an introductory email and say, look, this is me, this is a bit about who I am, Um, read read the book and get back to you. And then before the event, give them a list of places I wanted to go in the interview. So give them a little bit of a um, bit of a sheet. Now, a lot of writers don't want to even know that and they might not even read it, but it's sort of a safety thing for them and for me. Mm. So because if it, if it in the interview or before the interview they say, but oh, I don't want to do that, and like, oh, okay, we can change it around. So, I mean, you, you sort of you, you establish your own credentials and then if they're the type of writer that needs to know that they're safe, particularly with someone um, who's not in the news or who's not got a big, um, you know, uh, general community media profile, screen profile, they need to know that you know what you're doing. Mm. And so that's and that was the first thing. And then the second thing was with the work that I do in terms of my legal work. And it, it's about writing, so I write decisions, and it's a similar sort of thing. So when you start a decision, what I try and do is set up the scene, say what's happening, say what's been done, and then open up to the bulk of the decision to say, well, this is why. So like you say, oh, yeah. you need to you need to capture people and like you say, say it'll be all right. If you can trust me with that bit, you might have to trust me because this might be a little bit long and, in fact, the publisher wanted more about Ellen, the childhood thing. So I think, mm. you know, I really had to I really had to get that trust quite quickly. I think the third thing was that um, when you say that sometimes when you read a book you're not sure where they're going, I think that's because beginnings mostly have to be discarded. I think it's it, it, it's like it's, it's where, you, where you plot out your land and you put your stake, but your stake isn't necessarily the, the thing that you want to show the reader. So I think it's good to know where you start and then finish. But then I think, and it's so exhausted by the, you know, you're so exhausted by the time you finish a book. It's like, oh, bugger that, I'm not going to go back to the start. But I think, and it's, I think it's the same with a decision, um, like, a, like a legal decision. You need to go back and you need to get that start right because everything flows from it. Mm. Did I you think. have to go back and change the yeah. beginning of this? Yeah, 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 yeah. 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 Um, like, not the essence of it. I had the idea of an early morning knock on the door yep. with these two sort of quite um, frightening and quite surly women. Mm. And, of course, that was the thing too because Ellen's been brought up in a really patriarchal society. So to not only find that these police officers are wearing pants and they're women yeah. is is a bit of a shock. So I suppose, like you said, it needed to do a few things. Yeah. Um, and yeah, look, it just it was just one of those things you just worked until it worked well. And that's why working with an editor is so good because they pull you out of your well and they're with you and it, it gives you another burst of um, someone to write for or someone to please a bit, I yeah. think, or someone to to negotiate with. Yeah. I love that actually. I'd forgotten that there was two 
female police officers that knocked on the door. And that's, I think, very indicative of what you do is you subvert, the, you know, <laughs> these cliches all the way through so that they're not cliches, you know, knock on the door, two police officers, let's make them women. Yes. <laughs> let's make one of them really surly. And wearing not- pants. Because, and wearing because, pants. Because Ellen's never been allowed to wear pants. And in fact, when I started law, we weren't supposed to wear pants in court because mm-hmm. some, some judges or magistrates could simply say, I don't see you. And you'd go, well, I see you. <laughs> you can't see me. Not that you would say that. Um, and that was because of pants. So it's not that far away. And yeah. I wanted to play with that a little bit as well. Yeah. Well, speaking of having a list of questions, we I've completely <laughs> taken us off track, but that's okay because you're you and I'm me and we do this. <laughs> <laughs> Suzanne, I really love the way you balance dialogue, internal thought and description. You always seem to get it right. Like I say, I always feel very safe in your hands as a reader. I'd love to read an example or have you read an example if you would, just to give listeners a bit of an idea of how you create that balance in just even a page and a half, because you just deliver that again and again and again through the book. Oh, that's interesting because I um I find that I struggle a bit with the um, description. So right. so um I find dialogue easier. I find internal monologue interesting, and with description, I have to slow myself down to actually see it and describe it because I'll I'll rush past that. I've just been reading um, a new book actually by um, Kate Forsyth, which is called Psyche, which isn't out yet. Oh, yes. I can't wait to get my hands on that. (laughs) She really builds a description. I mean, Mm. she she is patient and descriptive and vivid. So if there's something that that I always look to do, it's to make sure that I haven't forgotten description so uh, i do like dialogue i, I like a lot li- i think because i speak some languages i quite like i like to hear how people speak and i'm not musically talented particularly but um i do understand i do hear people i think and i like to try and reproduce what i hear do you pace, pace around talking do, do you actually talk out the dialogue or do you, is it all in your head? In in the end I do because yeah. in the end I have to go to rhythm. So yes, when I've written the book, it needs to have a t- metre, it needs to have a clear rhythm. And so in that last sort of period, that's what I do. I sort of change the sentences and the dialogue so it meets the metre. And at first I thought that was just madness, you know, because I was, I was on my own and this, I think, the, the deceptions and I was writing on my own, like, you know, all day, all night, or gone away. Not all night, but, you know, all day and into the night. And it was sort of like a clock, like a, and I thought this is going to be ridiculous. This is going to be like a Dr. Zeus book. But but I think I've learned to be a little bit more trusting of that because I think the meter in prose is the key, getting the rhythm. That's so interesting. Nobody's ever said that on the podcast in all these years. Well, maybe it's wrong. I don't think I don't think it is. I think you're right. It's a it's a rhythm thing, isn't it? But it's that combination of music and words mm. that, uh, and and I think the more that people are listening on audiobook as well, the more that merges um, stage and screen and written word because people are listening as well as reading. And I think you know it's it's when I trip over a sentence that's when I know it has to change. So if I, if I do read it aloud, I, I always say I'm going to read the whole book out loud and I sort of half do and then sort of half because I'm always running late. Um, but I do think that um, that if you're reading a sentence aloud and something stops you, generally that's the rhythm and okay. that something needs to change to keep the meter. That's fascinating. I love that. All right, well, let's hear you <laughs> reading and we're going to be listening for... Meter and <laughs> let's hope. Let's Suzanne. hope it's it's do what I do, not just do what I say. <laughs> um, so this just just to um, give the context. Uh, Ellen's in year five. She's at a public school, a co-ed school. She's the only kid in the school who wears a uniform down to her ankles. Everybody else has them well above the knees, and it's a it's a fairly knockabout. Um, suburb and 
everyone's i don't say it's australia but it's it's a pretty australian um time and it's probably in the 90s i think the 80s 90s Mm. um so and this is a dinner that's been organized for the year five parents and children and to ellen's surprise her difficult mother and um, quiet father have agreed to come and they're all there. Mrs Sanderson had organised the dinner with help from Tracy Cameron's mother, who called herself Bim, even though her name was Karen. It's a great deal, she said. $10 for the kids, 25 for the adults, and that includes alcohol. Joshua's father, who was sitting a few seats down, popped up his head. What, even for the kids? Well, that made all the parents laugh, except for mine, of course. It was not until the end of the night, however, that my mother raised her objection. I don't think my husband and I should have to pay for alcohol, she said, her voice loud, given we are both teetotalers. The table fell silent, completely silent, except for Joshua's father, who suddenly leaned so far to the left I thought he might topple right over. Clutching onto the back of the seat where Joshua's mother was seated, his whisper emerged as a tongue-tied bellow. Tea what? he asked. Teetotalers, Tracy's father repeated, eyebrow raised. No alcohol, nothing, not even a beer. Tracy's mother looked disbelieving. Not even a champers at Chrissy. Pugger the champers at Christmas, added Joshua's father, straightening up once more. What about New Year's Eve? What about a glass to welcome in the new year? My face reddening, I glanced across at my parents, waiting for their answer. But they said nothing at all. Turning to face them, Yvette's mother was looking perplexed. What? You don't want to pay? Not for the alcohol, my mother confirmed. Of course, we're happy to pay for the food. So how much do you want to pay for the food? Although my parents exchanged a look, not a word passed between them. Fifteen dollars, said my mother, her voice resolute. We'll pay fifteen dollars each. Yvette's mother blinked, a strange half-smile settling on her lips. Oh, she said, I see. We'll be short then, we'll be short 20 bucks. The voice, loud and flat, came from the far end of the table. When I craned forward, I saw it was Kevin's father, who had a large red face. Short 20 bucks, he repeated, lifting up his right index finger. But I tell you what, I've got an idea, a real good idea. How about I shout the lot of yous? How about I just go over to the... to the... His voice faltered, eyes glassy as he looked around the table. To the bar, he said, his voice raised in triumph. How about I just go over to the bar, get another round for yous all? Then he paused, hesitating. Except for them ones because they're... He stopped, his face blank before suddenly lighting up. Because they're totaled. (laughs) Also a great example of that humour you were mentioning. Um. Suzanne, that was fantastic. You didn't read the audio book, but you could have. No, no. no Your voice I, I is suggest- amazing. I, su- I suggested it to my husband. He said, nah. <laughs> yeah, great. Uh, I, I do sound think- like you've been trained. Oh, really? Look, I think it's from listening to her. Uh, yeah. This Anthea Greco read, read the book and she's fabulous. And I didn't do it this time, but before interviews, often what I'll do is just listen to some random passage. Mm. And I and I think I'm just I'm following her more than anything. That's so good. So I was listening for the rhythm there and I could hear it, you know, the $15, we'll pay $15 each. And then a vet's mother saying, oh, I see. So you've got this kind of long sentence and this short sentence, which also says so much, you know, a vet's mother's clearly pissed off. Yes. Oh, I see. (laughs) Um, And also just you're talking before about description really there's not much description in there and yet from the dialogue I could visualize all those people you know (laughs) like that's good good. you know was it Josh's Joshua's mother her tongue-tied bellow like you could just just from that dialogue tag you could sort of visualize what she's like obviously good yeah so interesting so maybe that's it I mean maybe description is wider than I think maybe it's not yeah. just landscape description yes it can it, it can be the narrowing in of 
of a bellow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And just the content of the dialogue and the dialogue tags. I mean, all of that just works to create. I could see that scene, not just because I've been a year five parent at (laughs) (laughs) At the year five dinner. Yeah, exactly, exactly. All right. We talked a little bit before about structure. How much of the structure came before the writing of the novel? Uh, You know, the age old question, Mm. the plotting or the pantsing. Yeah, look, I think I'm I'm more a plotter. And, again, because of that software, because of uh, Scrivener, it, it encourages you that way. I also feel safer that way, I think. Yeah, what, what's interesting, I think, too, is the difference between writing something contemporary and something historical. So I'm interested to know about people who uh, are pantsers, so fly by the seat of their pants, but also write historical because there's so much you've got to anchor in an historical book so that the deceptions is partly historical in my kid's book, Running With Ivan is. And so it's almost like you don't have as much freedom because uh, you have to look up clothes, you have to look up food, you have to look up daily occurrences. So um, I think having written those books has sort of more entrenched me in that planning. Having said that, it is a bit like that join the dots. So you've got the beginning, you've got the end, you've got an issue that is interesting enough for you not to get too bored writing the book. No, so, so I think that's I think that's what pantsers say, actually. They say that if they knew everything, they'd just get bored and they would know what to do. I suppose my response would be I need to be asking myself a question that I can't answer except through fiction and that's what keeps me going. So it needs to be, it needs to be a concern that that I grapple with, and that's not easily answered. Otherwise, I'm not going to be able to sustain eighty thousand words. Mm-hmm. So, um, so I think, I think it's the question. I think it's knowing the characters, but then you know, it's all very well knowing the characters, but then you've got to introduce them to the reader. And I find that the grind work. I find that the grind work of having to, I mean, you've got them in your head, but you've got yeah. to you've got to get it out. So that's not what I know, but it's filling in. I think it's filling in. And trying to do it in an interesting way that's not going to bore the pants off the reader, I guess, as well. That's the first thing. draft, I don't care. First draft, I don't care. I don't just care. Get it out. Yeah, yeah. I just I just want to get to the end. Mm. Um, and I've done it enough now where I think it's okay if it's really, really bad because it's been really, really bad before and it can be made better. You just need to have it. So I hate, I don't know about you, Michelle, but I hate first drafts. Some people really love them. I can't stand it. Once I've got it, I'm okay. Yeah, um, I'm in that at the moment. uh, Yeah, yeah, it's it's hard work, It's quite painful. You've got to give yourself rewards like coffee and... um, Even just getting to the end of a day uh, of a, you know, you might crank out a thousand words and you think, where the hell am I going with this? Like it's just boring dialogue, but you're getting it down. That's what you keep having to tell yourself. You're getting it down, you're getting it down. I think that's the difference between people who finish and who don't because I think Mm -hmm. a lot of writers are perfectionists because, you know, we play with words. But the thing is if you've got to be perfect right from the beginning, it's going to be hard to finish, I think. So so I'm trying not to judge, not to judge anything, whatever rubbish it is, until the end of end of the first draft. That's really good advice. So that goes to your writing process. So what happens when you're drafting? You sit down at the desk for a day of writing or a session <laughs> of writing. What happens for Suzanne Lille at the desk? Okay. So, um, well, lately I've been looking at Facebook Marketplace. <laughs> that's been, that's been, that's got my attention, even though there's nothing I need to buy. That then. research, was it? <laughs> <laughs> it's preparation. Um <laughs> I try and do more, like it depends how much time I've got. So if I've got a confined amount of time, I try and do the early day time. So I do the mornings. So if I can do, like, you know, good case scenario would be if I could do a really non-Facebook marketplace morning. So from, I don't know, my other one goes now probably about, about eight. So if I could do from 8.30 to 11.30, that would be great. The problem is, you know, when it's going well, you don't ever want to stop, which means everything gets back. I mean, the, the things that you should be giving priority to, you don't, you just sort of keep on going. And when it's not working, 
you think we better do more because that's been a bit of a waste. Yeah. <laughs> so it's so it's hard to to draw them. But I have got a um I've got a room that there's a there's a space to create floor above the Marubra Library, uh, the Lionel Bowen Library, and it's rented out at very cheap rates to um, artists, so writers or visual artists. And I had that for, I, I had that until June, and it's just a little room with no windows, but it doesn't matter, and the door is closed um, so people don't come in or, you know, they, they can ring you, I suppose, and it's it's a good way to get out. I think a lot of writers work at home. I mean, it's hard mm. to have your, an office as well as your home and um, and particularly given, you know, the artistic um, earning rates seems like a lot to do. So to have this opportunity to rent a place which is really, really, really generous is great. So mm. so that that helps. So I suppose if I, if I leave the house, I sit down and I do it, then that's great. And then every now and then what I really like is if I can go away for a week. Veruna I really like. And there's something yes. that just, it's like the rhythm of the horse, isn't it? Yeah. You start to gallop yeah. a bit. And it's often that time where, I didn't understand it at first, but, you know, there's that time where it's been like a little slog and then suddenly it speeds up and suddenly you can't stop. And that's not a great time to be at home if you can get out because, yeah. you know, you just don't want to stop. So that's often the time where I'll try and go away if I can. And, of course, it's hard with people with kids who are younger than oh, mine. Yeah, yeah. But, um, and it's hard, you know, just even with kids, uh, yeah. the kids you've got because, you know, there's always a load of washing to put on and the dog wants know, to be let out. Which is why getting out is good if you can. Yeah, so good. Or, or being really um, methodical. I've become friends um, with Gideon Haig who's, um, who writes just everything and it seems to me that I think he might be completely able to focus. I can't understand how he would have the output he does and the quality he has unless his um, his concentration is absolute, whereas mine isn't, and I, mm. I know it's not. Mm. Um, so it's You've sort also of got paid work. I mean, we've, we're all juggling paid work as I know, well. I know. It's also yeah. tricky because sometimes things are pulling at you in the morning, mm. and even though that's probably your best writing brain. Other things are pulling your attention away as well from but, that. But then, you know, if you had the luck, if you if you were able to write full time, and, and I haven't really, really done that, would that be too much time? I mean, do you need yeah. do you need to be a little bit a little bit under the hammer to give yourself the discipline. Mm, I think so. I, I think you do. I just had four days away with Ray Cairns. Yes, I saw that. Such a luxury, uh, you know, have not ever done really done that before. Yeah, and we had this fantastic, when you don't have to look after other people mm -hmm. or put paid work first, hey, I cranked out just over 8,000 words in four days. Wow. That's, that's more than I cranked out in a year. Yeah, 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 do you know yeah, what I mean? Yeah. Like, so yeah, and and knowing that you're there just to do that really forces your hand. You just like, well, also having that other person, <laughs> and, and the other person who is there for that reason, exactly. So not like, the other person where you sort of pretend it's going to be like a nice sort of couple of days, but yeah. what you didn't say is that actually I just want to ride. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So you you, you need someone where the rules, yeah, the rules are clear. They, they, we had the rules and it was bloody <laughs> write your ass off for most of the day. And have, oh, we had a walk, great. we had a nice dinner to look forward to, but that day was just boom, right, 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 right. And doesn't it feel good, don't you? I mean, there's, the Protestant in me is like, huh, okay, I've deserved, I've deserved my meal. I'm yes, hard. <laughs> I know the reward is so sweet. Um, so, but when you, you, I know you use Scrivener, do you bounce around a little bit? Cause I found that's what I was doing when I had all this lovely luxury of writing time, I'd yeah. go, right, now where's where's the heat for me today? I think it's with this scene. Or there was one yeah. that I knew I had to get out and I'd been putting it off. I'm like, do you know what? I feel energised to tackle yeah. that one today. Yeah. Well, I, I did this particularly with The Watchful Wife. So I tried, I mean, yeah, as you go, you start to get, like I, I get scenes where some would be written and then I just put a new scene up in Scrivener and just say, this needs to happen. And that was it. Like it was, you know, 10, 10 lines, which is disappointing when you go back again because you think you've written it, but you haven't. And so what I found particularly useful for that was that when I was feeling the emotion that I needed, so when I was feeling really angry, when I was feeling really sad, when I was feeling really hopeless, and there was a scene that needed that, that's when I'd write it. 
because it would give it would give the concentrate that I needed. That's such a good tip. Now, speaking of tips, what do you have for us, Suzanne? That's a that is a great tip. I actually haven't heard that before. The the, the emotion that you're feeling on that day, maybe write that scene that does that needs yeah. that emotion in it. That's such a great tip. What are your other big tips for for writers? Well, I suppose carrying on from that, it's that nothing is ever wasted. Mm. Nothing in the writer's life is wasted. Nothing awful, nothing horrific, nothing violent, because if if you are the person who needs to write, then anything that happens to you, um, short of killing you, can be objectified at some point, maybe not immediately, but um, life for a writer can be a gift of information, even if it's devastating information. Mm. So I've, I've recently spoken to a friend who's had a quite quite a quite a difficult loss, and um, I sent her a book. Um, in fact, I, I sent her Grace Under Pressure by uh, Tori Hashka, and um, yeah, it's about women sort of cobbling their lives back together after unexpected events. And she writes about difficult things with this sort of dry voice. And this friend of mine is also very dry. And I said, look, if you're going to write, I'm not gonna, I might be wrong, but I, I said, I, I, could, I can hear you writing like this. So I think particularly for people who are finding things difficult, and I think a lot of people are having a difficult time, the world's in a difficult place at the moment, the beauty of the writer, I mean, it's not necessarily an excellent financial decision, but um, the beauty of the writer is that we can put ourselves back and we can look at the world in a less subjective way. And I think that's one way where you can manage difficult things in your life and get something that feels constructive. That's great advice. That's what I got. <laughs> yeah, that's great advice. Thank you. Suzanne, thank you for your time today. I actually could keep talking to you for another oh, hour. Oh, me too. Me too. <laughs> we have pressing things that we need to do, including all that paid work we always talk about. Thank you so much for chatting with me today. I can't recommend this book highly enough. I think everybody should have a read of this. It's a really beautiful story. It's it's a page turner, but it also just has so many lighter moments, as you say. You really balance that beautifully. I just think it's a great masterclass of a novel for a writer to, to go through and, and have a read. Come back and have a listen to this, and then you can um, pick up on all of Suzanne. Suzanne's tips regarding this novel. What's next for you, Suzanne? You've got your Thursday book club. Yes. Can anyone so, join that? Yes, anyone can. Yes. It's an online books club. You can come late. You can leave early. You don't have to read anything. Um, there's no set book. Uh, you just talk about your books. Once a month we have a guest author, uh, which you can come and listen to and read their book in preparation if you'd like to, and um, you just zoom in. So if you go to my website, which is SuzanneLeal.com, um, which was beautifully curated by Michelle <laughs> Barraclough herself, fresh web design. Um, thank you. And for the you <laughs> thank you. Thank you. It was quickly, quickly done, wasn't it? <laughs> I'll put a link to Suzanne's website in the show notes. Thank you. And um, and just sign up and come or don't come. It's it's one of those, it's supposed to be the the stress-free book club. Yeah. They're a lovely group of people. Yeah, it's nice, isn't it? It's really nice. And it sort yeah. of changes a bit too. So the idea is that, you know, th there's no pressure, but we'll be there. Yeah. And you're drafting a new novel at the moment? Or? Yeah, I'm, um, I'm I'm writing a kid's book. So okay. I'm, I've, I've got a kid's book that's due in a few months. So we're going to have to be uh, less Facebook marketplace for me. <laughs> <laughs> Get into it. Oh, and yes, if you go to Suzanne's website, you'll also see all of her other books there. Um, they're all brilliant and can't recommend her highly enough. Oh, thanks for sure. <laughs> Checks in the mail. <laughs> Talk soon, lovely. Thanks for coming. Bye, Michelle. Bye. Thank you. There you go, Suzanne Leal. Apart from reading her novels, if you ever see her name on a festival program as a facilitator, do go along and have a listen because she really is an incredible interviewer. And don't forget to check out her Thursday book club. So all the details for that are on her website, which you can find at suzanneleal.com. In fact, all the links, including where to buy Suzanne's books, are in the show notes on whichever podcast app you're listening to this on, whether that be Spotify, Apple, Google, or your preferred podcast player. And while you're in there, if you do feel like leaving a rating or review for the podcast, you, well, you already have my undying love, but you'll absolutely make my day. Thank you. Right. Who's coming up next? 
I know many of you are big fans of this writer, and even though she was born in England and she lives there again now, a huge part of her heart still lives in Australia, and we like to call her one of ours. I'm talking, of course, about the fabulous Hannah Ritchell, and we are going to be discussing her latest novel, her fifth novel, The Search Party. Now, Hannah has always written about families and secrets, but with this novel, she takes those themes to the next level and has added a crime element. And let me tell you, she has absolutely nailed it. It is unputdownable. You're going to love this novel. Let me tell you what it's about. Max and Annie Kingsley have left the London rat race to set up a glamping site in the wilds of Cornwall. They invite old university friends, TV star Dominic, Doctor and new mum Kira, and free-spirited Jim and Suze, and all their children for a trial weekend, but the reunion quickly veers off course. First, there's the incident around the campfire on the first night. The following afternoon, a storm quickly develops off the rugged north coast. When one of their group goes missing, all hell breaks loose, and as the winds batter the tents, emotions run high, and tension mounts for all the characters. Who is lying in hospital? Who has gone missing? And who is the body on the beach below the cliffs? Gripping, cleverly structured, brimming with secrets and lies, this is a masterclass in narrative tension and a chilling exploration of the ways in which aspiration and anxiety collide. It will keep you guessing until the last page. I couldn't agree more. I... Honestly was guessing until the last page and I'm dying to talk to Hannah about this because she juggled so many points of view but the person lying in the hospital like I thought I knew who they were then she'd throw me off the scent and I thought it was somebody else and then I was thrown off their scent and I literally did not know until the end of the book so well done Hannah prepare to be grilled about that. Now, my guess is that after reading this, you'll have heaps of writing questions too. Now, if you haven't read The Search Party, I've put a link for where to buy it in the show notes. So have a read and then send in your questions for Hannah. You can send me a DM on Instagram or Facebook. And don't forget, there's also a form on the website at writersbookclubpodcast.com that you can fill in if you want to be a little bit more private or if you don't have social media. And remember, everyone who asks a question gets a shout out on the podcast and a link to your website or your socials in the show notes, just as a little sweetener. Of course, as always, I'm giving away a copy of The Search Party with thanks to Simon and Schuster. All the details for the giveaway are over on Instagram or Facebook. But hey, if you're not on Instagram or Facebook and you still want to go into the competition, get in touch with me at writersbookclubpodcast.com and I'll pop you in the draw because nobody should be penalized for not being on social media, let me tell you. Okay, lovely people, that is it for this month. As always, I'm recording on the beautiful unceded lands of the Garigal people of the Eora Nation, where I'm lucky enough to live and work. I look forward to catching you next month. Until then, happy writing.